Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 197. I think we all have a little conspiracy theorist living inside of us, right? We all tend to be a little paranoid to think, hmm, how could these things fit together? Is this all just a coincidence? We don't, we inherently don't like coincidences, apparent patterns. They speak to us. They, they, they emotionally respond by saying, oh, that's something real there. We don't like you know, dismissing apparent patterns as just coincidence or illusion. And so we look for the hidden hand, the, the, the meaning. You know, It's not a recent phenomenon. It's not something that only happens at times of crisis. It's uh, not something that disappears when you're not looking at it. There is no evidence right now that conspiracy beliefs are increasing. I mean, it could be the case, but there's just no evidence of it. And I haven't found any evidence that conspiracy thinking in general is increasing. In short, what these three experts are saying is that conspiratorial thinking is something that all brains do. It's part of how brains make sense of the world. It is inescapable. And it's something all of us are prone to doing, including you. Many conspiracy theories have grown so popular over time that large numbers of people have gathered around those theories, which then led to communities. And once a community forms around anything, Believing or not believing in that conspiracy signals that you are or are not a member of that community. And once social costs are in play, once reputational concerns are in play, once identity concerns are in play, tribal psychology takes over. That's how conspiracy theories can become ideologies that snowball into large political movements and mass political action. Group behavior based on a delusional, an incorrect interpretation of the facts, leveraged against incredible social demands. And although this is a time in history, especially American history, in which it seems like this is happening more than ever, that conspiracy theories have taken hold of the country in a way never seen before, that's not true. The number of conspiracy theories in circulation, and the number of people who believe in them, surprisingly, are both about the same as they've always been. And although this time seems like madness, 
right now, in a lot of ways, it is. It's madness. It seems as if our politics have become polluted in a way that we've never experienced by conspiracy theories. This is not the first time that has happened, and nor will it be the last. Those snippets you just heard, they come from interviews going all the way back to the first few months of this podcast. We've been covering the psychological phenomena underlying conspiracy theories and the communities that form around them for years now. But I'm recording this just two days after the events at the United States Capitol in January of 2021. The insurrection, based largely on a conspiracy theory that the election of Joe Biden was a fraud, that Donald Trump had that election stolen from him. And that's not true, but many people refuse to accept that, and prompted by Donald Trump and others, who also refuse to accept that, we saw what often unfolds. At some point, a conspiracy theory becomes a worldview, and then if you can find enough people like yourself, an ideology, and then a shared set of norms and values, and then, well, insurrection, if not worse. Now that something bizarre and heinous and deadly has unfolded because of conspiratorial thinking, coupled with tribal psychology, many politicians who supported Donald Trump and many who voted for him are doubling down on the conspiracy theory by saying the people who stormed the Capitol couldn't have been Trump supporters. It's too antithetical to their values of respecting a sacred building, of respecting the halls of democracy. The behavior is too awful to condone and too offensive to allow one's self, one's group, to be tainted by association. And so, instead of abandoning their support for Trump or admitting the conspiracy theory is a delusion, they have chosen to believe the people who smashed their way inside the chambers of Congress were actually agent provocateurs, actors, members of Antifa or Black Lives Matter, and so on. People pretending to be Trump supporters. They couldn't actually be like us. And we've covered the psychology behind that as well, which can be summed up like so. If a particular interpretation of new evidence would require us to update our beliefs or values, we experience cognitive dissonance until we either change our minds or change our interpretation. And when the social costs are high, most people will choose the latter. If you're interested in deep dives into these ideas, into these psychological concepts, I recommend going back and listening to episode 157. That's on pluralistic ignorance, the psychology behind why people don't speak out against and even defend norms they secretly despise. It's the whole emperor's new clothes thing with some additional uh, twists and turns that take even the story of the emperor's new clothes and turn it on its head. There's also episode 185, which is about anti-maskers and the reason why people refuse to wear masks during the pandemic and why that has almost nothing to do with the actual masks themselves. It has to do with all sorts of social costs and signaling and things like that. And then there's episode 122, which is about tribal psychology itself, how our unchecked tribal psychology pollutes politics, science, and just about everything. Those episodes together really build up 
a three-dimensional picture of the sort of things that can happen and, as we recently saw, did. We've devoted, over the last few years, so many shows on the very psychology of what we saw in the Capitol a few days ago. In this episode, I thought it would be worth our time to re-listen to three interviews in particular to gain some perspective, because each one of these interviews was prescient in some way. On three occasions, we've welcomed a guest who was an expert in conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking. And so in this episode, I'm presenting each one back to back. And in a future show, we will dig into this particular conspiracy theory, what just happened in a way that will try to explain it beyond just politics, beyond just sociological concerns, get really into what's happening in the brains of people wrapped up in something like this, how it came to be, what it means for us, for all of us, moving forward into a decade in which social media may not have increased the number of conspiracy theories and their popularity, but it has offered an unprecedented ability for believers to find each other and organize. So, in this episode, first up, political scientist Joseph Yuzinski. And this interview comes from episode 151, first released in April of 2019. And that show was all about flat earthers and how motivated reasoning and other psychological mechanisms lead to conspiratorial communities. Here's the interview segment from that episode with Joseph Yuzinski. In the first segment of this episode, we sat down with the filmmakers who made Behind the Curve, a documentary about people who believe the Earth is flat. This is considered a conspiracy theory because for you to believe that the Earth is flat, you have to believe there is a conspiracy to convince you that the Earth is not flat and that someone is behind that conspiracy, some great them out there who don't want you to know the truth. We learned from that conversation that, like most conspiracy theorists, flat earthers are usually reasonable, intelligent, scientifically curious people. They love their families, they hold down jobs, they pay their bills, and so on. In other words, they aren't crazy and they aren't stupid. So, what leads reasonable, intelligent, scientifically curious people into such fringe beliefs like these? What makes a smart person susceptible to conspiratorial thinking? Well, it might surprise you to learn that we haven't been asking that question in science up until recently. Until about the 2000s, the only people who studied conspiratorial thinking were historians. And much of their work focused only on social movements and social anxieties and national trends that led to such beliefs. In other words, they didn't spend much time thinking about individual believers. It wasn't until the attacks on 9-11 that psychologists and political scientists began to turn their attention and their research to the believers themselves, to what was happening in the lives and brains of people who come to believe in one conspiracy theory or many. For the last 12 years, one of the leading researchers in this domain has been political scientist Joseph Yuzinski. My name is Joe Yuzinski. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami. I study conspiracy theories and the people that believe them. According to Yuzinski, in the United States, about 60% of people believe that the JFK assassination was a conspiracy. 
25% believe that Barack Obama is secretly a Muslim or a Kenyan or both. 25% believe that 9-11 was an inside job. 21% think that the government is covering up some sort of alien contact. 20% believe vaccines are part of some conspiracy in some form or another. 10% believe that fluoride is. 6% think that the moon landing was faked. 5% believe that airplanes are producing chemtrails. And 4% believe that the world is secretly controlled by reptile overlords. 4%, by the way, is 12.3 million people. So, most people in the United States believe in at least one of the major conspiracy theories. But if you include all the many political conspiracy theories that come and go and go around for a little while, it's likely that you, dear listener, believe in something that isn't as obviously fringe as flat earth, but it's still no less the result of conspiratorial thinking, and it's led you into a belief in something that simply is not so. And this, says Yuzinski, is why it is so important that we study this aspect of human psychology. What people believe, especially about their governments, affects how they vote. It affects what they value, and it pushes them toward or away from collective action. And that action can affect the unfolding of history, whether or not people participate in it. Here he is talking about that sort of thing at a recent lecture. Individuals can take action on these theories, and they can cause incredible damage when they do it. So just two years ago, a guy got a loaded weapon, went into a pizza shop, fired off a round that went only a few, a few feet from somebody's head, then went to a broom closet door, expected to find a secret tunnel that would lead him down to the uh, sex slave children that Hillary Clinton had been, had been uh, molesting and then burning in the pizza ovens. And he was shocked to find brooms in the broom closet. And he went in front of the judge and he said, gosh, I'm really sorry, but I was just there to save the children. And the judge said, you're, one, you're going to jail, and two, that bullet was only a few inches from blowing somebody's head off. So people can take bad action when they believe these theories. Somebody's going to fight fire with fire. I asked Yuzinski, as a political scientist, how did he become interested in conspiracy theories? So I've been working on this about 12 years. Uh, when I got into it, I'd like to give a more romantic story about why I started doing it. But all I can say is a, a co-author of mine at the time, Joe Parent, came to me and said, conspiracy theories, causes and consequences. And I said, oh, gosh, um, sounds interesting, but it's way off the beaten path of political science. And he persisted. And then I I sort of looked into it, and I said, there's no data on this. I said, no one's been collecting survey data. No one's been collecting you know, these large data sets to make any claims over time, um, which is what I would have wanted to do. So I went to the letters to the editor of the New York Times. We gathered 1,000 editors a year for 120 years, so um, 1890s to 2010. And then we had about 120,000 letters, and then we had our assistants code them all uh, based on whether they engaged in a conspiracy theory or not, and then who who was being accused um, and when. So we wound up with this this body of more than 800 letters over time. And, and you see some of the big conspiracy theories that we know of getting mentioned, but you see a lot of the little fish, too. 
And that's what made it sort of a neat data collection is that, you know, when you go out and survey on conspiracy theories, the researcher is picking the conspiracy theory they're going to ask people about. Um, but with this, it, you know, we were picking up any and every conspiracy theory that people had on their mind at the time. And, and there was a really broad range, whether it was the CIA created lesbianism to take down the women's movement or Jimmy Carter is a Soviet agent. I mean, all sorts of, of weird stuff. Uh, was in there, um, so that was the first step, and then and then we started doing polling, and we've been doing some repeated polling uh, since 2012. So it's given us a lot of leverage on um, at least conspiracy thinking and conspiracy beliefs in the U.S. In that data set, Yazinski found a clear pattern: conspiracy theories can be plotted onto a grid. On one axis, the theories correspond to the partisanship of the believers. And on the other axis, the theories can be plotted by whether people feel like they are, as he puts it, winners or losers. Together, over time, conspiracy theories come and go, depending on who is in political power. When the left is in power, the conspiracies that thrive tend to be about communism, socialism, and liberal plots to cheat, take power, and keep it. When the right is in power, the conspiracies that bubble to the surface tend to be about corporations, the wealthy, and Republican plots to cheat, take power, and keep it. What we find is that conspiracy theories tend to be used by groups who are on the bottom end of a power asymmetry. So, so think about any sports game. Who complains about the, the, the ref's calls? It's the losers. Who says they were cheated? It's the losers. We find the same exact thing after every major election. So the losing party says, we were cheated. The other side, either you know, they had people vote illegally or they hid the ballots or they kept people from voting who should have been able to vote. Um, but this is, you know, this is very regular in our elections where losers say um, that they should have won if only they hadn't been cheated by the other side. Um, and going back to the letters to the editor data I, I mentioned what we found in that data was that over time, when a Republican was president, the majority of the accusations of conspiracy were focusing on uh, the right and the rich. And when a Democrat was president, the, it switched so that the, then the accusations were focusing on the left and communists and socialists. So whoever was in power was the lightning rod for uh, the majority of the conspiracy theories. And if you just look back in the last 20 years, you see this demonstrated fairly well. I mean, when Clinton was president, like, oh my God, they have a kill list. And, you know, they killed this one and that one. And uh, uh, they have all these scandals. And then Bush came into office and then it was 9-11 and Halliburton and Blackwater and Cheney and, you know. And then as soon as Barack Obama was elected, all of that became socially and politically inert. And it was the birth certificate. Um, and secret Muslimism and all this stuff. And and now, even though Donald Trump is a conspiracy theorist, which normally doesn't happen, um, the left has engaged in a lot of conspiracy theories. And there's a third dimension to all of this. Just how likely a person is to believe in a conspiracy theory in general determines how far along they go along one of these axes, how deep they go into one of the quadrants. People's beliefs tend to be driven by their existing worldviews. So in order for people generally to buy into a conspiracy theory, um, that 
theory will have to conform to their existing worldviews. So, for example, Republicans aren't going to believe their own party is out to get them. They're going to believe the other party's out to get them and, and vice versa. Um, and on top of that, there is a dimension of thinking that I call conspiracy thinking. And that is that some people have this worldview uh, to one degree or another um, where conspiracies control events and circumstances. Other people have this worldview much less, where they tend to reject conspiracies outright. Most most of us are somewhere in the middle along this continuum, so it's not an either-or. Um, but imagine, so for, for someone to believe that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate to illegally usurp the presidency, um, y- you can't be a Democrat, first of all. Um, and, you, and you can't be someone who rejects conspiracy theories. So in order for you to buy into this, you have to be someone who is probably a Republican and you know, has a lot of conspiracy logic floating around in your head. So for that reason, if you divide this into quadrants, you know, high conspiracy thinkers and low conspiracy thinkers and Republicans and Democrats, you're going to wind up with about 25% of people who will buy into any partisan conspiracy theory. So you, you had, you know, polls showing about 25% of the public bought into birther theories. Now, on the opposite side, you had about 25%, um, you, you know, at least for about a decade and a half, buying into um, 9-11 truth theories that accused the Bush administration of blowing up the Twin Towers. Now, interestingly, the, the 9-11 truth numbers are coming up, um, it seems like. And the reason for that, uh, seems to be that Donald Trump has given the okay to Republicans to buy into this theory now. I think with Bush sort of being in the past, um, the Bush administration being gone, it's not worth Republicans sticking up for that anymore. And with Donald Trump sort of hinting every once in a while about 9-11, you have these Republicans sort of joining in on this. So, so we may very well wind up at some point with you know 50% of the country believing in 9-11 conspiracy theories. <laughs> According to Yuzinski, we all carry with us some conspiratorial beliefs, but to believe in something as grand as Pizzagate or Flat Earth or that the moon landing was a hoax, one would need to score very high on a measure of conspiratorial thinking. And to determine where a person lies on such a measure, he has, over the years, developed a test that consists of just three statements. Wondering how you would do on that test? Well, he's going to provide those statements right now, and for each one... Answer on a scale from 1 to 7 how much you agree with these statements. 1 being you strongly disagree, and 7 being you strongly agree. So much of our lives are being controlled by plots hatched in secret places. Even though we live in a democracy, a few people will always run things anyway. And the people who really run the country are not known to the voters. So how did you do? Yuzinski says that most people don't believe all three of these. If people do believe strongly in one, they will usually not believe strongly in the others. And therefore, most people score somewhere in the middle when you add them all together. The truly interesting thing is what happens when you ask other questions and then compare people's answers to their conspiratorial thinking scores. And what we do from the answers to these three questions is we can create a conspiracy thinking score for each survey respondent. 
and and that sort of tells us um, how conspiratorial they are. And it's that score is incredibly predictive of their other views. So we'll ask a question that says, "Here's a list of ten groups. Uh, which of these groups do you think are conspiring against us now?" And uh, we'll list Republicans, Democrats, rich people, corporations, you know, Freemasons, whatnot. Uh, people on the high end of our conspiracy thinking scale pick between five and ten groups. The people on the low end pick one group. So if you're on that high end of the scale, you're like somebody who's not going to go out at night because everyone's out to get us, you know. Um, and, and there are other things that make those people different, too. They tend to, to make less money. They tend to be less educated. Uh, at the very end, high end of the scale, they tend to be slightly more accepting of violence against government. So there are differences there um, as you go up and down that, that conspiracy thinking scale. But, but the bottom line is the higher they are in conspiracy thinking, um, the more they subscribe to that worldview, the more likely they are to believe in individual conspiracy theories when, when those come along. People who score very high are also less likely to register to vote, less likely to put political signs in their yards, less likely to invest in the stock market, and more likely to vote third party. All of these are related to how much power you feel in comparison to the elites that you perceive as running the world. And at the very high end, it seems that these people who score really, really high on this test are the sort of people who believe in the conspiracies that paint a picture of the world where no one is in power, no one you would recognize, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the left or the right, but some hidden cabal that's higher than all that, the hidden government, the shadow government that's really running everything. One thing you find with these very extreme conspiracy theories um, is that it's not a lot of people that believe them, um, but the people that do believe them tend to believe in a lot of other conspiracy theories, and they have a very strong conspiratorial worldview. Or at least that's what I can observe anecdotally. Um, in the documentary, I mean, all the people that believe in this said, yeah, I believed in a lot of other conspiracy theories too, so much so that they had lots of books on different conspiracy theories, whether it was 9-11 or whatnot. Um, so they already have this worldview, and it's being expressed through their interest in, in a lot of other conspiracy theories, and then they just fall onto this, and it you know, makes sense to them. Um, if you go way up on the scale of conspiracy thinking, and you just grab those people who, you know, for them, everything is a conspiracy, um, those are the people who are going to buy into the, to, to the more zanier things like, like flat earth and or hollow earth or cone earth, which I've heard too. Yeah. Reptilian, um, reptilians and yeah. Or, or yeah. Or the reptilian believers. I mean, it's, it's, you know, people can go to a David Icke show, the guy who pushes the, the, um, reptilian elite theory. And in the first act, he'll come out and say, Oh, the big banks and the political parties and the governments start to get us and everyone. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and then Act Two, he gets to the lizard people, and then you have fewer people clapping <laughs> and buying into that part, um, but some do. So, so you know, I don't know how to define in this context the word extreme, um, but I, I guess just using it colloquially, you know, the more extreme the theory is, the less people you have buying in, and the only people who are going to buy in are the ones who have that really strong conspiratorial worldview. And, and do you think that we are? 
Do you think that this is something, this is on the, as a general phenomenon, is this on the rise or is it consistent over the eras? Is, uh, is this uh, more of a, a um, is this something that we're focusing on more or is it actually something that is growing and metastasizing? There is no evidence right now that conspiracy beliefs are increasing. I mean, it could be the case, but we just, just no evidence of it. And I haven't found any evidence that conspiracy thinking in general is increasing. There is a lot of coverage of conspiracy theories, and there's a lot of political rhetoric of conspiracy theories. Um, but that's different than saying people believe in it more. So when I first got into studying this, I set up a Google alert to track the term conspiracy theory and a few other terms like Bigfoot and aliens and whatnot. And I was getting back about five or six articles a night um, on conspiracy theory. So so news articles that had come out um, the previous day. Um, but as time went on, um, particularly starting around 2015, I mean, that number has spiked. And of course, some of it has to do with, you know, just Google picks up more stuff now than it used to, but that doesn't explain the variation because now I get, you know, 100 plus stories a day with the word conspiracy theory in it. Um, it's a lot. And and if you go to the New York Times, for example, um, you can look at, at their coverage of the topic of conspiracy theory in the last year, and you'll have probably 100 articles. If you go back 30 or 40 years ago, you'll have maybe one or two in a year. So you get very few uh, mentions of it. So it just wasn't something that mainstream outlets were paying attention to. But now, because you have political elites, namely Donald Trump, um, but also others engaging in this form of rhetoric. Now journalists have to, you know, cover that rhetoric, cover the back and forth that ensues from it, and they have to cover the topic of conspiracy theory more generally to sort of understand what's what's going on in our politics. So you wind up with a lot of coverage um, of it now that that you just didn't have before. I think instead what we're having is that these ideas are coming to the forefront of our politics. Um, and, and I think in some ways Donald Trump has brought with him a group of people who, um, have this strong conspiracy worldview and he's engaging with them quite a bit. So it's their conspiracy politics that are sort of running the country right now. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was 
unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, 
it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. This next excerpt comes from episode 87, The Paranoid States of America, released in November of 2016. In it, we explored why Americans love conspiracy theories, how they flourish, how they harm, and what they say about the culture. You're about to hear Jesse Walker, the author of the book, The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. If you go back to the beginning of recorded history in in America, I mean, the beginning of the European settlement, immediately you see conspiracy theories, and they really don't let up from then till now. There may be times when it's a bit more intense, like right after 9-11 or something like that, but even at times of relative peace and prosperity, like the 1990s, you can have a ton of conspiracy theories uh, in play. You say that it's... um this is not something you should think of as existing only within people on the fringe or people who are extreme. Um, why is that? Uh, because you know the mainstream has its own conspiracy theories. Um, and I don't just mean by that um, the fact that the things that people think of as conspiracy theories, like uh, you know more than one person being involved with the Kennedy assassination and or you know UFOs being uh, from outer space and it's being covered up. It's not just that things like that actually have uh, a lot of people believing them. I mean, it, it's always, almost always, been a majority, for example, who's thought that a conspiracy is behind the uh, Kennedy assassination. Um, but I mean that there are things that aren't even thought of as conspiracy theories, or at least aren't thought of as conspiracy theories at the time that they're going on. Um, which nonetheless are by any you know objective definition of the phrase, and which are you know embraced not just by lots of people um, but by the institutions that you know turn up their nose at things like Kennedy assassination theories um, anytime there's a, well i shouldn 't say any time, but lots of times that there's a moral panic, for example, um, the sort of fears that congeal around. Um, a, a new subculture or a new practice or what have you um, will often take a conspiratorial turn. A, a recent example that I like to point to because it's, it's recent enough that a lot of people remember it, but weird enough that people can feel removed from it, is the satanic panic of the 1980s um, when uh, not just uh, people on the fringe who might have been saying such things in the 70s, but mainstream journalistic uh, organizations, uh, TV shows like 2020, um, people in the, the U.S. government, uh, juries who could send people to jail, were taking seriously the idea that um, there was this vast network of satanic cults working behind the scenes, infiltrating daycares, uh, molesting children in rituals, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, it's kidnapping people and killing them and then disposing of the bodies by perhaps cremating them. And that's why the police weren't able to find them. So this is, uh, this is something that was taken very seriously by the mainstream in the 80s. Nowadays, people look back at it as this sort of strange episode. Um, and when people talk like that, they are described in the sorts of terms we use when we talk about the fringe. But it wasn't a fringe phenomenon when it was going on. Uh, that really leads into what you say often throughout the book is that you don't really see cons- you see conspiracy as uh, revealing to us something about the shared anxieties of the culture or the subculture, almost as if it's um, as you write folklore, right? Yeah, it, I mean it is folklore. I mean, I should say that you know sometimes a conspiracy exists, and sometimes there's a conspiracy theory that is false but has elements of truth in it. Um, but even when a conspiracy theory doesn't have anything in it that's true about the object of the conspiracy theory, it says something true if it catches on about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. And it becomes this kind of funhouse mirror way of uh, looking at you know the way um, Americans of the past or present were seeing the world. Uh, I mean, one example, which is, uh, I mean, this always surprises people because it was such a strange thing for people to believe. But in the early 1940s, during World War II, it was fairly, there was a fairly widespread belief in the, among Southerners, white Southerners in the United States, um, that, uh, you know, black Southerners were in league with, you know, Hitler and or with the Japanese, or in some versions, with a conspiracy headed by Eleanor Roosevelt. And we're going to have uh, you know, the South handed over to them. I mean, there was this idea of swastika clubs, um, you know, black Southerners in league with uh, the Nazi party, um, supposedly. And, you know, if Hitler won the war, they were going to be handed the South. And, uh, you know, and uh, white Southerners would, you know, then they'd be the slaves, you know. And this was, on the one hand, it spoke to the anxieties that were going on in that place and time. Um, you know, whites afraid of uh, the people that uh, they were not treating well, who were below them on the social ladder, and also whites, uh, like, like most Americans, being afraid of uh, the, you know, the, not the Nazis overseas, um, you know, we, that we were at war at with. But it was also an echo of earlier conspiracy theories, stories that had been told in the antebellum era about uh, the alleged conspiracies uh, plotting slave revolts, that perhaps some sort of outside force was uh, working behind the scenes to manipulate, often northern abolitionists, but sometimes something else, you know, land pirates or Mississippi gamblers or, or some other cabal. Um, and so at, at the same time, it's, it's a way of seeing what people or a certain group of Americans were afraid of at this point in history, but also... It was uh, it was part of this long history of a particular story that kept getting told with new names and, and places being plugged into the old narrative, something that had existed since the days of slavery and would continue to exist afterwards. I mean, I write about conspiracy theories about the um, urban riots of the 1960s. And again, you're hearing those same echoes. Um, it, it sounds like, a, I mean, it's a very well-defined genre. And uh, they they were you know telling a new version of an old story. With that in mind, the idea that um, oftentimes or every time a conspiracy theory will tend to reveal what's um, the anxieties of the culture that's that's playing around with it. Um, 
you talk in the book about birthers and how there's sort of some very specific things that are going on when when people really get into um, the idea that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and is a, secretly a Kenyan. Um, could you kind of break down from that perspective what what is what is someone who is believing that? What are they getting out of it? What are they expressing through that birther um, conspiracy theory? Obviously, it varies from one person to another. I mean, I, I um, describe uh, uh, three sort of big reasons why I think that story you know, caught on and persisted even after it was clear that the evidence wasn't there for it. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone subscribes to all three who picked up on it. Um, the first, and I think it, the most in, important in terms of just getting it launched, it wasn't so much about anxieties as it was about this desire for a magic bullet that you know could end someone's career, political career, without the pain of political persuasion. Um, I mean, if if you can prove Barack Obama uh, doesn't have the right to be president of the United States, you know, poof, there goes that problem. Uh, and, and as I uh, say in the book, you know, if you went to a birther convention in 2009, one thing you almost certainly wouldn't hear anyone say is, I strongly support Obama's ideas about health care reform. It's just too <laughs> bad he's ineligible to be president. It was people, you know, who were against Obama to begin with. Right, right, but, then, right. but then beyond that, it's obviously bound up with this general suspicion of foreign influence and the foreign in general. Um, and this comes up in a lot of the rhetoric that people like, for example, Lou Dobbs used when he was sort of playing footsie with these ideas. Um, G. Gordon Liddy actually on Hardball um, directly said that if uh, if the birthers, if what the birthers were saying were true, were, was true, um, the president would be an illegal alien. Um, and, you know, if you look at Obama's biography, there's plenty in there already that's going to can fan these sort of nativist anxieties. He spent a chunk of his childhood in Indonesia. His father came from Kenya. Uh, when, uh, as a boy, he did live in the United States, he was in Hawaii, you know, the one American state that isn't actually a part of the Americas. So if you don't conceive of the United States as a multicultural nation, um, the president is already metaphorically foreign, and conspiracy theories are very good at transmuting the metaphorical into the real. And it's a it's a great example too of just um you know it's one of those things that people once they once they hear this this narrative a certain kind of person is not going to take much effort to try to debunk that narrative because it helps them fulfill their uh you know their preconceived notions about what they would like to be true about uh if, you know even if you're not a person who's deeply invested in the birther thing i would imagine that um when you do hear about it there's a certain kind of person who's like hmm yeah I can see that being true, maybe. And most people don't take the time to, you know, when they read a story, and this is not just true of conspiracy stories, it's, you know, true of all kinds of stories, to then go out and actively seek out the responses and say, well, what are, the, what are people saying that might call this into question? So if you just read one story and it presents what looks like pretty good evidence, that might be enough for somebody. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have I have one friend who was at least for a while into uh, or opened, let's, let's say, treated the birther stuff with more respect than it deserved. And, and you know, it, it um, he wasn't one of these fear of the foreign people, but he was someone who was strongly opposed to Barack Obama. And I think this uh, um, fit into, I mean, for on policy grounds and this sort of fit into his ideas about and what wouldn't this be good? You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people uh would probably agree that right now it seems like there's a lot of uh, conspiracy thinking and paranoia coming from what appears to be uh, the political right in the United States. Um, and you look at 
sort of the last decade, the recent things like death panels and FEMA camps and the birther thing and all that sort of stuff. Um, what do you think accounts for the the fact that it seems tilted to the right right now? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that um, people have this narrative that you hear that, you know, the right, quote, unquote, went crazy, you know, in 2009 or sometimes, you know, 2008, people will say, um, and there was a sudden surge in conspiracy theories. Uh, I think you look at the Bush years, there were plenty of conspiracy theories on the right. They were not, in general, directed at the government. Uh, I mean, there were some conservatives who didn't like Bush, and they would be more likely to embrace a story like that. But, you know, they were about terrorists. They were about illegal aliens. You know, it would be, you know, sort of Muslims and Mexicans and, you know, and their alleged supporters at home um, would be the, the stars of those stories. So it's not so much there's this sudden surge on the right as there is a change in direction. Um, and something which people weren't necessarily paying as much attention to before, because we have this idea that a conspiracy theory has to involve the government, um, which, you know, obviously there's tons of conspiracy theories that are aimed at people outside the government, outside, um, outside the United States altogether. Um, but, you know, it, it just doesn't register in the same way. But, I mean, there was intense paranoia, you know, especially tied up with the war on terror. Um, so... You know, so now that there is a Democrat in office, that kind of attention, that kind of fear gets more attention. The fears on the left um, don't get as much attention. The fears in the center, as always, you know, don't get defined as uh, political paranoia at all, usually. Um, but it's a, uh, it, it, that, uh, that doesn't mean that there was, you know, this sudden surge in paranoia so much as just a change in the, in the form it took. You mentioned the FEMA camp thing. That's interesting because that's a story that tends that seems to sort of migrate from the left to the right and back again. Yeah, depending on who's in power. Um, even before there was FEMA, you had stories about you know Nixon is planning to create concentration camps and so on. But you know after FEMA is created in the yeah, that's at the end of the Carter administration. But the first FEMA conspiracy theories I'm aware of were sort of a byproduct of the Iran Contra. Um, a scandal, and, and there was a you know this story about you know, Oliver North and this sort of war gaming sort of planning he was he was doing that, and, and you know and and this story uh, emerged from you know this you know true report sort of spiraled out into this thing about you know FEMA it was going to be putting um, you know opponents of you know Central American policy in, into camps that migrated to the right in the militia days in the nineties when Clinton was in power. Um, and now it's it's popping up on the uh, right again um, uh, with Obama in power. Yeah, I, in your book, you were talked about how uh, like I lived through Katrina. I had a lot of Katrina experiences. I I covered a lot of Katrina stuff when I was uh, a uh, print journalist, and you could see the conspiracies sort of um, emerging from both sides. Like you write about in the book, where you have one side is saying. Uh, they're killing each other in the streets. They're looting everywhere. The Superdome is, is just rape and pillage. And then um, the other side is saying that this was uh, the government blew up the levees and made it made Katrina happen. And you, and you actually can see that those deep anxieties coming out in those conspiracies like you write about. Yeah, and that's not even left versus right. That's more about you know elite paranoia versus grassroots paranoia, which I think is, is ultimately a much more interesting division. Um, because, you know, I mean, that was, I mean, the sorts of the, the stories that, um, the false stories that spread um, about what was allegedly happening in New Orleans um, uh, during and right after Katrina, that was an example of the kind of a centrist fear. These, these uh, 
unsupported rumors, often completely false, other times severely exaggerated, um, that were taken seriously by the mass media and which actually affected um, you know, a government policy. I mean, there was this deliberate decision to have this more militarized response because people had this perception of you know, looters in the streets and so on. Um, this didn't usually take the form of uh, conspiracy theories, but it's a more sort of broad dread kind of paranoia. And sometimes it got you know linked to sort of conspiracy conspiracy esque stories about gangs. Um, and you know, so people, if when someone brings up like a, a phrase like paranoia after Katrina, people think about oh yeah, those rumors that uh, the government was uh, deliberately blowing up New Orleans levees to drive out black resident uh, residents. But the um, the kind of paranoia that was much more destructive was the kind that was taken seriously by the people in power. Um, I mean, that's by definition, people in power have uh, have a greater ability to uh, to have an impact on the world. That's what power is. And I, I think, and this is one of the main themes of the book. You know, elite paranoia is much more destructive than grassroots paranoia. Sometimes you have uh, something like the Oklahoma City bombing. It's not as though grassroots paranoia can't have terrible results, um, but it's much more common uh, for elite paranoia to have that kind of far-reaching and destructive impact. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a really fascinating and, and something I'd never really thought about because you go all the way back to um, settlers before America is even America, and there's all these crazy um, paranoid episodes surrounding... Um, Native Americans and um, uh, around um, other types of uh, movements that people think are stirring within the, uh, the 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 natives and the populace and that sort of thing. Yeah, I know, and, and uh, I mean, the I mean, which ranged from you know plausible fears that maybe you know a, a tribe was preparing to attack, all the way. I mean, I mean, that's the sort of conspiracy theory that you know could turn out to be true. All the way out to these really bizarre um, tales in which uh, Satan came to uh, the New World before the settlers and brought some diehard pagans with him because he saw that the gospel was gaining ground in Europe and that he set these um, old European pagans up as the Indians and was directing their attacks against the settlers. Um, and this, you know, it's not just sort of a, a strange belief that, you know, some prominent Puritans and others took seriously. It was an example of um, something that had a really destructive real world impact. Uh, I, I talk about King Philip's War in which, uh, you know, New England settlers um, had some Indian communities on their side in the war and also uh, a lot of Indians on the other side of the war. And I, I and I, I get in the book into like sort of assassination stories and all how that led to the outbreak of the war. But you know, for, in terms of the the point I'm making now, the the important thing is that um, during the war itself, even though there were Indian tribes allied with the with the European colonists, and even though there were so-called praying villages um, filled with you know Indians who had converted to Christianity. Um, and were you know trying to assimilate themselves uh, to an extent with um, the the European uh, with the Europeans 
uh, that nonetheless were, you know, people were saying they're all against us. They're all in confederacy against us. They're all in conspiracy against us. And the Indians in the praying village, uh, villages were rounded up and interned on Deer Island, um, where tons of people died. Uh, survivors were sl- uh, sold into slavery. It's one of the uh, great early atrocities of American history, and it also foreshadows things like the Japanese internment in World War II. And you know, paranoia is right at the root of it. One of the stories, uh, before we go, there's one story that uh, I was so like, oh my God, this is so bizarre, was uh, you talk about a, a program called COINTELPRO. Yeah. And what makes that insane to me is that it is a conspiracy of sorts to uh, mess with certain groups of people by encouraging them to believe that there is a conspiracy afoot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, the FBI was not just, and this, this is um, from 1956 to 1971, really picking up speed in the 60s. It was officially shuttered in 1971, although some COINTELPRO-like things have been done since then. Um, people will argue, you know, it, about calling other things, you know, the new COINTELPRO. There are some technical dis- differences among them, but I don't want to get into that. Or, uh, that debate, but es- essentially, the FBI was not just um, infiltrating and spying on uh, dissident groups. Um, the FBI was you know, deliberately disrupting them, uh, and one way that uh, its agents and informants would do this was by spreading word that someone else was the informant, someone else was the snitch, someone who didn't have any contact with the FBI, or at least none that they knew of. And and this was, you know, a, a deliberate attempt um, to make people afraid of one another and unwilling to work with one another. And so what I write in the book was, and of course, the reason the FBI was doing this was because the FBI was paranoid. Um, they, they were seeing, you know, communists behind the civil rights movement and, and things like that. Um, and of course, this is an example of a real world conspiracy. People who talked about, the, you know, the FBI doing things like this um, they, uh, you know, were, you know, off and before it was exposed in 1971, um, were often, you know, looked at the way someone says, look down their nose at a quote unquote conspiracy theorist um, nowadays. So when you put all that together, you basically have a conspiracy to defeat alleged subversive conspiracy uh, conspiracies by convincing the so-called subversives that they were being conspired against. And if that's not a <laughs> hall of mirrors, I, I don't know what is. This final excerpt comes from episode 16, released all the way back in January of 2014. This is Stephen Novella, who is still a leader in the skeptic community. He's the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, an academic clinical neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine. Since the show, though, he co-authored The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, How to Know What's Really Real in a World increasingly full of fake. Here's the interview. A lot of people would, uh, since you are an expert on conspiracy thinking and conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, what they would like to know um, from your area of expertise, are Glenn Beck, Jesse Ventura, and Alex Jones involved in some sort of conspiracy to protect us from learning that the reptilians used thermite paint to take down the Twin Towers on 
<laughs> are you asking if the conspiracy theorists are like a false flag operation? Right. Are they some sort of uh, operation to keep us from the real, real, real truth? Uh, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, let me say that. So, I mean, basically, no. I mean, they're obviously, they're not deliberately engaged in any kind of deliberate deception or misdirection to discredit conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories so that we don't notice the real things. But I do say that, you know, if your interest is being a watchdog on government to uh, prevent government excess or corporate excess or whatever, weaving bizarre conspiracy theories is not the way to go about doing it. You're, you're not doing your job. And if anything, you're in fact providing cover if there, if there is anything nefarious going on. So I do think that it does distract from the legitimate job of being a watchdog on you know, the powers that be. Well, you know, a lot of people who I think watch those shows, they think of themselves as being like they they believe that they are critical thinkers and that those shows make them critical thinkers. So um, from your perspective, what is going on there in a person's mind who thinks that, okay, I am being skeptical. I'm watching and listening to people who are questioning everything. Yeah, it's uh, it's cynicism, really. It's not skepticism. Just blanket disbelieving everything any authority tells you is not critical thinking. That's not skepticism. That's being a contrarian, you know. So, they, but it, I do in, frequently encounter people who think that just being a contrarian and just disbelieving everything makes you a skeptic, and it's not that easy. Being a skeptic, being a skeptic means separating what's likely to be true from what's likely not to be true by using some kind of process of evaluating logic, evaluating evidence, trying to step back and look at your own thought process, what we call metacognition, thinking about your own thought processes. It's not just a blanket, oh, I don't believe anything, everyone's lying. That's just naked cynicism, which is kind of a cheap way to imitate skepticism, but it's not skepticism. Mm. Okay, so I, I just looked at the recent Gallup poll, um, and it uh, there was a right around the time of the um, anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, they brought out the uh, latest research by Gallup, and they said that in 1963, um, 29% of Americans believe one man was responsible for the JFK shooting, and 52% believe that there was a conspiracy. In 1976, um, that belief in a conspiracy theory went to 81% of the population, and then today, most recently in 2013, it's at 61%. So, um, and there were a lot of uh, articles about that. From um, from your perspective, what is going on here? Why is this conspiracy theory so um, popular and prevalent and um, even after all these years? Yeah, I mean, JFK is an iconic figure in American history, and I think that that assassination had a huge impact on the American psyche. So it's not surprising that people are still interested in it, still talking about it and speculating about it. It was a very complicated historical event, and there's a lot of things that, that happened that might superficially make someone wonder, you know, could one person really uh, get that close to the president and, and take him out? And, um, you know, the, the assassination of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby can superficially be made to seem like a silencing um, and so, you know, it's a big historical event and people assume that a big event must have had a big cause. There's a disconnect in our mind. The idea that one lone nut 
took out the most powerful person in the world and all the ramifications that flowed from that and yet it, it there was no one else involved seems incongruent so but that's again that's just our gut feeling you have to step back from that and look at the actual facts and when you do that you know it becomes obvious becomes evident that all of the physical evidence points to one shooter in the sniper's nest in that book depository and the only person that really was in the right place at the right time was Lee Harvey Oswald. He, he clearly, his behavior was clearly guilty. I mean, he fled the scene. He killed a police officer that he encountered, you know, who just approached him for questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and despite the, all of the conspiracy theories and, you know, 50 years of speculate of, of investigating, no one's been able to find any real evidence of an actual conspiracy. All they find are anomalies. They do what we call anomaly hunting, where, um, you know, if they find something that seems unusual, then that becomes evidence of a conspiracy. Not They don't know what conspiracy, just something's off here, something's not right. Uh, but, you know, if you take a deep dive into any historical event, you're going to find weird stuff, weird coincidences, people acting in a way that you can't fully explain because you don't have to have all of the all of the information about what situation they were in. You could make a conspiracy out of anything. So well, how would you define a, a conspiracy theory? What are sort of the moving parts of your typical conspiracy theory? What separates it from other types of um, delusional thinking? Uh, well, when you're asking that question, you're really asking about a, what we call a grand conspiracy theory. There are obviously small conspiracies. You know, three people in a boardroom can certainly concoct a conspiracy to defraud their competition, for example, or mm-hmm. or whatever. But a grand conspiracy involves uh, many people having to deceive the media, the government, you know, large organizations, uh, or um, either on a, a huge scale or over a long period of time. Uh, grand conspiracies are inherently implausible because they tend to collapse under their own weight. Just you know, you, you have to make them bigger and bigger and bigger uh, in order to explain away, like, hmm, why isn't the media exposing the flaws in the standard story about 9-11? Well, they must be in on it, too. So they just, you know, massively increase the size of the conspiracy. Uh, can the, the structure of a conspiracy essentially divides the world into three kinds of people. There are the people who commit the conspiracy, the conspirators. They uh, generally are perceived of as being incredibly evil, cartoon, you know, mustache twirling evil. They have amazing resources and can concoct these fabulously complicated plans. But at the same time, they're incredibly naive and stupid because they have to be in order to expose themselves to, to some extent. And then there's the... Um, the army of light, right? The people who can see the, the who can see the conspiracy for what it is, that are trying to save the world from the evil uh, conspirators, and then there's the vast majority of everybody else who are the dupes, the sheeple, right? Every everyone else in the world. So that's the that's the world according to the conspiracy theorists. They're in the army of light. They've seen the conspiracy, and everyone else is too stupid to say it. So, um, and you mentioned this earlier. Um, what is What's strange about this to me is that um, it seems to be 
part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be just sort of part of the way we're naturally built to think about things. And there can be a certain triggers in the environment can cause a, a person who would normally consider themselves to be rational to start to kind of fall into this sort of thinking. Is that, Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all have a little conspiracy theorist living inside of us, right? We all tend to be a little paranoid to think, hmm, how could these things fit together? Is this all just a coincidence? We don't, we inherently don't like coincidences, apparent patterns. They speak to us. They, 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 Emotionally, we respond by saying, oh, that's something real there. We don't like you know, dismissing apparent patterns as just coincidence or illusion. And so we look for the hidden hand, the, the, the meaning, you know. And when you're trying to connect events and explain apparently disconnected events or apparent anomalies by saying, well, that's because there's this malevolent intelligence behind it all who's controlling everything – that's a conspiracy theory. So it's a form of pattern recognition in order to generate a narrative um, that makes sense of a, comple- a complex world. And, you know, you could make um, – I hate to resort to hand-waving sort of neuropsychological arguments, but it certainly makes sense that we would um, have some tendency to look out for ourselves, to be on the lookout for – people conspiring against our interests um you know but we we evolved of course in small tribes you know where like you know a couple people could be banding up against us but now that same um mental hardwiring exists in a worldwide complicated civilization but we apply sort of the same pattern recognition and saying oh there's there are the forces are conspiring against me but these forces are now governments or Mm -hmm. institutions you know it's generational it's not just a, a few people who live near me and it always seems to me that it's like um, conspiracy theories are, are projected toward things that are just very complicated to understand. And it like takes something that's this thing that has lots of moving parts is very complicated. There's more to it than uh, there are more people involved than you could ever meet and talk to. And then it turns it into something really, really, really simple. You know, like the uh, it's like taking something very complex and making it super simple and easy to pick apart in some way. Yeah, I mean, partly it's uh, a desire for simplicity and understanding. I'm going to make sense of this wide array of events and factoids by saying it's everything is created by the conspiracy. Any evidence that's there, that was put there by the conspirators. Any evidence that's missing, that was hidden by the conspirators. And so there's no once you're inside that that mental framework, there's no way out. It's a self-contained belief system. No evidence can convince you that the conspiracy is not true because that was just planted, uh, right? So, like when the the uh, moon hoax conspiracy theory, pulling off the, a hoax to fake going to the moon was actually more complicated than just going to the moon, <laughs> right? Uh, but and every every time we come up with more evidence, oh look, we have a satellite now in low moon orbit. That's taking pictures of the Apollo 11 landing site, and you could see the footprints of the astronauts. I mean, it's smoking gun evidence <laughs> right. that we were there, that people were walking around on the moon. Well, they, NASA must have faked it. Oh, there you go. So I, there's no nothing we could do, you know, unless we, even if we took that person to the moon and put them at the Apollo 11 site, they could say, oh, they just mocked this up for me. I mean, there's just no evidence that could possibly get them out of the mindset um, because any, any evidence could have been faked, right? Is it, does, this, um, does, this fr- does this frustrate you? Because I imagine that you have had to deal with a, a lot of people who are very, who have become very good at insulating um, and defending themselves from uh, a 
any sort of evidence attack? Is this something that really frustrates you as, as, a, uh, as a leader in the skeptic uh, community? I mean, it fascinates me. I try not to be frustrated. If, if that sort of thing frustrates you, then you're in the wrong business because that's just that's day to day. I mean, obviously, I can't help but be frustrated at some points in time, but I just always have to step back and say, this, what I'm interested in here is what, what's going on in people's minds, their thought process that leads them to this point. How can I deconstruct their thought processes and, and figure out exactly where they're going wrong. And then can I figure out a way to explain that to them? And if not, why? What, 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 what escape hatch are they using to get away from logic and evidence? So by just you know taking a, a sort of an academic view of it, I try to remove myself emotionally from the, what would otherwise be an extremely you know, on a personal level can be extremely, extremely frustrating, but you just you can't let it get to you. Otherwise, you know, you'll go crazy. It's like letting the trolls get to you online. Right, if, if that's right. if that happens and you just get offline, you just don't engage in social media if you're going to let trolls get under your skin. <laughs> um, for me personally, the thing that was most uh, frustrating and bizarre was right after Sandy Hook. Because um, mm-hmm. like, I think we all, uh, anyone who is into this world of, um, of, uh, hoaxes and uh and um delusional thinking you'll you're you're pretty familiar with things like the illuminati and chemtrails and Mm -hmm. the moonland jfk uh, drug companies oil companies all that kind of stuff but then out of nowhere comes this event um and if anyone doesn't remember it was uh, a a young man went into a school he shot 20 students uh six staff members and right afterwards it was almost it was like within hours um this conspiracy theory community started to blossom online mm-hmm. and, and say that it was something created by the government to encourage uh, gun control. Um, right. That worked really well, didn't it? <laughs> right. So what, um, it, is there something that we could do? For, uh, do you think that we could either prevent or prepare for this sort of uh, thinking and behavior? I think so. I mean, I do think that we have to be aware that around any big emotional in the media event like that, there's going to be a community of people who are going to try to create a conspiracy around it. And I think there are things that we can do as a society to maybe at least mitigate that. I do want to say, though, about Sandy Hook, you know, I I live in Connecticut. I have family who live in Sandy Hook. And I personally I personally know people who were at the school during the shooting or were among the first responders so I guess I'm part of the conspiracy, too, because, you know, I, I'm one step removed from people who were actually there. The notion that this was all staged or faked is ridiculous. I mean, now that you have a conspiracy that would have to involve an entire community, mm-hmm. how could a community not know if 27 people who live in their community were killed or not, if these families were fake? I mean, how, that's, doesn't, that one boggles my mind. How could you, if you think through it for even a minute, it, it just cannot, cannot be. It makes absolutely no sense. But what they're looking for are, again, the anomalies. Oh, the police found some guy walking through the woods and they, uh, they took him for questioning and put him in the car and then they let him go 15 minutes later. Well, who was he? Well, the fact that you don't know who that guy was doesn't mean that he's part of some conspiracy. Turns out he was an off-duty cop. They questioned him. He flashed his bag, badge and they let him go because he checked out. You know, they were checking out anybody who was in the area. But you would never think, oh, maybe that guy was an off-duty cop. But weird things like that happen. Just, that's just the nature of reality. And that's what, you know, your inability to explain exactly every little thing that happened doesn't mean 
that it's it's there for a conspiracy. It means you just don't have enough information to make perfect sense of every tiny little detail. Um, but getting back to like, what can we do to to maybe mitigate these situations blossoming? I do think we need to um, document the facts on the ground very carefully, with an eye towards the fact that you know someone's going to try to distort this into something that it isn't. And I do think that we really need to weigh. The, the conspiracy angle when deciding um, how transparent to make events. Um, so, for example, like the decision to uh, when the, when the U.S. government found and killed Bin Laden, mm-hmm. and they decided, all right, we're just gonna we're gonna you know kill him on sight, get rid of the body, not show any video, you know, not let this turn into anything. Um, like an internet, you know, minimize its in, you know propaganda purposes internationally, et cetera. But at the same time, by playing it all close to the vest like that, you know, it looks like they have something to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't believe there's any conspiracy about that, but I mean, they 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 had to balance those those various factors. Um, so I think you know the government uh, and media have to think about you know I, I think we should err more on the side of being transparent. And uh, and storing and saving evidence, even though it might not legally be necessary, I think just for historical purposes, you know, having original evidence available for independent review is does go a long way. I do think to at least marginalize the conspiracy theorists. Like for example, with nine eleven, I do think that the um, skeptical analysis and deconstruction of the conspiracy theorists really helped to marginalize them over the years. They're never going to go away. They're always going to be there on the fringe. But I do think it re- it, it reduced the size of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it it's 9-11 is one thing, and it's incredible and strange that people are still um, pumping effort into that conspiracy theory. But in Sandy Hook, people were calling the... Um, the parents they were harass- mm-hmm. harassing parents saying that they're ch- that they were actors it was one of the most infuriating and bizarre things i've ever seen whenever it comes to this uh you know human behavior on a mass scale so i would hope that um that someone out there is is uh consulting with um people in positions that could maybe mitigate that sort of stuff because it is obviously a human behavior that i think is going to happen again somewhere along the line yeah, absolutely. You know, and it could be very upsetting and very destructive. Um, and and again, you could be motivated to sort of isolate those families, which I think you know, they deserve their privacy. But then, of course, any attempt at isolating them for their privacy then fuels more conspiracy theories. So wow. it's a bit of a catch twenty two, right? You know, um, and almost either way, you kind of fuel the conspiracy theorists because they'll take silence as an admission, to talking about it as a, a diversion, you know, whatever you do or don't do, they'll spin that into, see, that supports the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't win in a way, but I do think that um, the one thing that, that governments shouldn't do is just default to their hide everything sort of reaction to, you know, to keep everything hidden is, is kind of the, the, just the natural instinct. Um, and I think that they need to um, think about that carefully, you know, when, and, and be as transparent as they can be, uh, to at least you know minimize the fodder for the conspiracy theorists. Is, conspiracy theories are such a fascinating thing about the human mind because um, at, 
I'm reminded of um, you know ant spirals, the ant death spirals, where the uh, mm-hmm. where ants get into a, a um, sort of a feedback loop where they can't stop themselves from going round and round and round. Um, it always conjures up that image in me in my mind because it's like. Um, the several of the elements of uh, the way we cons- you know make sense of the world and the, and the way that we um, try to logically go about uh, disassembling experience can get us caught in this weird loop that's almost inescapable. Um, how would you recommend that if you're one on one with someone who is deeply invested in conspiracy theory, what would be the best way do you think to proceed to try to try to knock them out of that loop? Oh, I don't have any magical solution to that. I don't think that there's any formula or any single approach that works because of exactly what you're saying. I, I like the analogy of the ant death spiral. Uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as um, like completely free thinkers, but in fact, you know, we we are following algorithms just like ants are. Just our mental algorithms are a lot more sophisticated and complicated. the The solution is that you have to get out of that algorithm. To, that's again the metacognition. You have to think about your own thought processes, um, and, you know, as much as you can, you know, and, and even thinking about the way that you think about your thought processes, um, because you know we're just otherwise that we we tend to default back to our biases and our mental pathways of least resistance. Um, so when people are stuck in a in an isolated belief system like that a, a closed off belief belief system there is no way to get through to them by definition um all you can do is is just be you know persistently try to get them to think you know about that very fact itself try you know and try to get them to think about the way they're approaching the evidence, the fact that they're not being open to the outside. And it'll either resonate with them or it won't. You'll, you'll get through or you won't. I, and I have gone through to people, um, although not not uh, usually one-on-one, but, you know, like through my podcast. But that's because, you know, I get to talk to tens of thousands of people at once. And so when, you, when you're dealing with those kind of numbers, yeah, people email me and will, and will say that, you know, they did – um, come out of that way of thinking over time. Like eventually, we sort of broke through, we cracked through. But the probability of doing that on any individual is statistically remote. I mean, you know, belief systems are very good at protecting themselves. Wow. Um, thank you. That's really cool. The um, I, we're sort of running out of time here, and I want to get in a, a few of these questions from uh, from Facebook. I, th- I told people on Facebook that you would be a guest on the show, and there was a, there were a lot of people that wanted to ask you different things, so I grabbed a couple of them. Um, this one comes from Steve Corey, and he asks: Have there been any? Have there uh, been conspiracy theories that at one time were dismissed as being part of the fringe that were later discovered to be true? And if so, does this play into the hands of conspiracy theorists who are then able to say, "See, you never know." Uh, no, I mean we get that question a lot, and the answer is no, there are no grand conspiracies that were on the fringe because they were highly implausible that then turned out to be true. There certainly have been government and corporate conspiracies in, in at the uh, the moderate level conspiracies, the corporate boardroom conspiracy, for example. Um, sure, we we those historically exist. We, we we never doubt that. The confusion is you know between the grand implausible cons- uh, conspiracies and the more small-scale, mundane conspiracies. Nothing, no grand conspiracy has ever turned out, you know, despite the odds, to, to end up being true. Okay. Um, 
And we, we sort of touched on a couple of these things earlier, uh, but Brad Clark asks, in a world that seems rife with hidden agendas of politicians and corporations, how do you define the line between a conspiracy theory and healthy skepticism and distrust of mainstream information? Yeah, again, that's gets back to what I was saying. Um, and again, this isn't, I don't want to create the false dichotomy that there's two completely different types of conspiracy. It is a spectrum. You know, it's like, at what point does a conspiracy become implausible? I just think you have to evaluate every claim on its own merits. What is the evidence? What's the plausibility here? Um, you know, is the thought process valid or are people just weaving conspiracy theories out of anomalies and, and ignorance? Um, so again, there's, there's, it's, it's the general critical thinking, skeptical metacognition formula, you know, just applied in this specific area to conspiracies. It's like saying, you know, what's the line between science and pseudoscience? Well, okay, there's, that's a long conversation about all the little things that make science valid versus invalid. Um, so you, there's no... There's no way around just doing a detailed evaluation of any individual conspiracy claim. Uh-huh. Great. Um, so Bill Heidenreich asks um, in this, I'm going to sort of paraphrase this. He's saying that um, he cannot decide who to believe when it comes to uh, the debate over climate change because he hears from one side that there are conspiracies afoot trying to convince you that climate change is real when it's not. Um, if you don't have a lot of scientific knowledge, you're not, you're just a, you're very much a layperson. What's the best way to make heads or tails of something like that? Yeah, that's really tricky uh, because you need you need some kind of scientific literacy, scientific understanding, even if it's just broadly about how science work, how the institutions of science work. If it's all a mystery to you, then, yeah, you just have one group of people saying one thing, another group of people saying another thing. Um, the evaluation comes when you know, like, how the process of science works, and you could say, all right, you know, the, the consensus of scientific opinion among published, you know, peer-reviewed uh, legitimate research is all pointing in this one direction, and and their arguments all hold up. Whereas you know the the uh, global warming is all a big conspiracy side of things. When you actually take any individual argument of theirs and and drill down, it evaporates eventually. You know, eventually, if you drill down deep enough, you realize that it it, it was made up. It's just not valid. It's not a correct argument. And they're they actually don't have the consensus or or um, the weight of opinion on their side. You end up, you realize that it's the same you know, few people who are generating all of the anti-global you know, warming um, opinions. Uh, so, you know, it, but there, you, you require some level, I think, of, of scientific literacy in order to make sense of it. Um, Right. If you if you don't if you can't tell like a valid scientific argument from an invalid scientific argument, I don't know how you could separate those two things. Mm, okay. So more science education is required here. Yeah, uh, we need a scientifically scientifically literate public in order to participate in a democracy in the 21st century when we have to you know make decisions about things like should we be vaccinating all of our kids? You know, should should we be doing something about global warming before it's too late, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, one last question. This is from Tandy Bird, and she wanted to know, um, are there certain traits that you've seen that seem to make a particular kind of person more susceptible to belief in conspiracy theories? Well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I don't like to be an armchair psychiatrist, you know what I mean? So I try not to, like, analyze people's psychology um, just from casual, non-clinical interaction. But 
it is certainly recognized that there are some people have more of a tendency to be paranoid, to have what we call paranoid ideation. Um, and it's been studied. In fact, people who tend to um, who b- tend to believe in conspiracies are also more likely to see patterns in random visual images as well, which is really interesting. They might have this enhanced pattern recognition, or they may just have a, a decreased uh, sort of reality testing filter, meaning that they're much more likely to think that patterns that they think they see are real. Um, so I think that's but again, we all have that tendency to some degree. These just may be people who are farther along that spectrum. They're a little bit more paranoid, more you know, uh, more intense pattern recognition, and they're less skeptical of their own their own uh, perceived patterns. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's important. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, people who fall into this line of thinking, it's it's not stupidity. They're they're not dumb. They're, they're very no. They're often very intelligent. You know, they're very good. I mean, ironically, people who are highly intelligent are a lot better at rationalizing their own beliefs. Um, so they, they're much more sophisticated in, in locking themselves into the beliefs that they want to hold. It's so in raw intelligence isn't enough. You really need critical thinking skills. You have to be able to get outside of yourself and think about your own thought process. Um, uh, so otherwise, it doesn't matter you know how much you know. Your factual knowledge, your memory, you know, other measures of intelligence actually work against you in that they will make it. You know, they'll give you the tools to lock yourself into whatever belief system that you want. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, go to youarenotsosmart.com. And for previous episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, or Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, hire some staff, all that kind of stuff, go to patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free but at the higher amounts you get posters t-shirts signed books and other stuff the opening music that's clash by caravan palace this music right here is from banjo apocalypse and to really support the show just tell everyone you know about it and check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.